I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, April 27th, 2011. Mm-mm. We are going to do our light edition today due to our publishing crunch. But I'm excited to say that the, this book will be out either end of the day or like first thing in the morning. We're oh, we're just waiting on it to uh, populate and make itself available. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy stuff being said. We challenge it. We take God's Word out and do the comparative work, do the job of a Berean, If it doesn't stand up, well, the thing that's being said gets tossed out as not being true. God's word is true. God is true. Let men be liars. You know, that's kind of the idea here. You know, keep in mind when we talk about uh, man's sinful and fallen state, that the first commandment is you will have no other gods before me. Well, that being the case, uh, since God commands it, it's pretty clear that uh, in our fallen state that uh, uh, the, the first thing that, you know, goes out the window is a proper, true understanding of God, who he is, and worshiping of him. Instead, it's an exaltation of idolatrous ideas, self-made theologies, cobbled together theologies, and and weird stuff like that. And so we do the comparative work, because unfortunately, this kind of nonsense is going on inside of the, uh, at the Church of Jesus Christ right now. And so, yeah, it's, you know... It's been going on since, well, since the beginning anyway. <laughs> I mean, read the New Testament. The, even the apostles were not, um, well, they, they, let's say they were not safe from false teachers. In fact, uh, false teachers were, uh, uh, you know, they they had to confront them even in their time. And so uh, we got to do it in ours. 
Um, before we get started today on our light edition, uh, you know, uh, we've we've finally got the the final format. Everything's done. We've got the uh, cover artwork finished for our book, and the book that we're going to be publishing. The name of it is "The uh, Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners," a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by me, Chris Rosebro. And uh, we're going to be publishing this in Kindle uh, and EPUB to begin with. Uh, PDF coming uh, uh, shortly. Uh, but uh, we're going to start getting this out uh, ASAP. So um, if you are currently a member of the uh, uh, Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, be looking in your email uh, for an email from us uh, giving you instructions on how to download uh, th- uh, this, uh, this book uh, so, that you can, uh, it, so that you can read it. And, of course, uh, you know, if you don't have the software to read it, uh, Amazon.com has uh, free software available for Mac as well as uh, uh, Windows that you can download so that you can read this book. This These sermons are amazing. They are fantastic. And uh, looking forward to uh, having you all uh, get them into your hands so that you can enjoy them and uh, be edified by them. So, you know, keep that in mind. And if, you, if you're not a member of the crew and you would like to purchase a copy, it, it will be available for $9.95, like I said, probably end of today, end of today or beginning of the morning tomorrow. So uh, we're just waiting on, you know, a couple of things that are a little out of our control at this point because we've, uh, we've got the final uh, product uh, created. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, waiting for the right things to get out. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, be looking for it. Just good stuff. All right, uh, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, uh, we're doing a light edition. I'm going to be playing another sermon in the uh, sermon series preached by Mark Deaver, Dr. Mark Deaver of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and and his sermon series entitled Pierce for Our Transgressions. The name of this sermon is entitled Justified by His Blood, Justified by His Blood, and he's going to be preaching on Romans chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to Romans chapter 5. And uh, we will get going. Here we go. Here is Dr. Mark Deaver. In November of 1993, about 2,000 people, mainly women, gathered in Minneapolis for a theological conference. But it wasn't sponsored by Desiring God. It was called Reimagining God. Lesbian feminist Virginia Mollencott of the National Council of Churches spoke at the conference and suggested that it may be necessary for women to leave denominations in order to create a new holistic church. Mollencott also claimed that Jesus' atonement was, quote, the ultimate in child abuse, depicting God as an abusive parent. Dolores Williams, then a professor at the Union Theological Seminary in New York, agreed condemning the idea of Christ's atonement as an abusive patriarchal system with the comment, I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses, dripping blood and weird stuff. For too many people today, the cross is simply weirdness. It makes no sense. And yet this is at the very heart of Christianity. We Christians say that we know what God is like because of the cross. Penal substitution is the idea that Christians are forgiven the penalty due to us Because of our sins, the penalty due to us, because of our sins, because Jesus took our place, living the life we should have lived and dying the death that we deserved, that our sins deserved, and that he did this for us, for our salvation. 
Now, one of the specific concerns that's raised about this idea of substitutionary atonement has been the simple irrelevancy of the idea. Some scholars have suggested that such an idea, such an understanding of the atonement has no subjective ethical impact on our lives today. That it makes no difference. It's all about God satisfying God's wrath. It's all something that that he does. And basically, the critics ask, what good is the cross to us right now? How does it affect my life today? And their conclusion is that it doesn't. And so the cross, cut off from its effects, begins to look to them pointless, even ghoulish, as it did to those critics at that 1993 conference in Minneapolis. Is this way of understanding the cross that we've been considering for these last few months as we've gone through Scripture, is this way of considering the cross neutral in its ethical effects on people, on our attitudes to each other, on on how we treat people? Are there any effects of the cross on our behavior? And to consider this and other questions, we continue today in this series of studies on the atonement of Christ that Michael Lawrence and I are presenting in this first part of the new year. This morning we are again in Paul's letter to the Romans. So if you would take your Bibles, open them to Paul's letter to the Romans. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. If you're using the Bibles provided here in the West Hall, you'll find that passage on page 1116. And if you're using the Bibles provided here in the main hall, it's on page 1181. And you will be helped uh, if you follow along by looking at the text and leaving your Bibles open there. This passage is the way of salvation according to Paul. This is the heart of the gospel that he preached. Now, does the Bible teach that there are benefits of Christ's substitutionary death for us that come in the future? Does it teach that there are any that we experience now? What's the significance of the timing of Christ's substitution for us? And what's the point of it? We'll be looking at these questions and more as we consider these verses. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That's the passage. Two powerful statements there in verse 8. And you'll see then two powerful rhetorical questions following it. Let's remind ourselves of the context of these verses. In the letters so far, Paul has argued in chapters 1 to 4 that the only way we will ever be declared right before God is by faith 
in what God has done in Christ. He blocks up that way of works, ending it up in 3, 19 and 20, showing that in the way of works, no one will be declared righteous. So do not even try to religion your way to heaven. Don't try to good works your way to heaven. That won't work. But he says in chapter 3, verse 21, now a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness from God has been made known. And that's the way of salvation. That's the way that God has made available to us through Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ and in his blood, as Paul says in chapter 3, in Christ having died for us. And then, lest anyone think this is a novelty, he goes back in chapter 4 to the example of who? Of Abraham, the father of the faithful. And he shows that even Abraham himself was justified not by works, but by faith, by believing what God said. So Paul says, this is no innovation. Yes, it's new that we understand how God would do this in Jesus specifically. But this message of salvation by God accounting our faith in his promises as righteousness is the very message that was revealed in Genesis, in the life of Abraham. And Paul argues on throughout this letter that that has been the message of God. And this is what's been the mystery that's now fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Well, he's made that clear in chapter 4. Now in chapter 5, Paul talks about the benefits that flow to us from the death of Christ and salvation by faith in this dying and rising Christ. Peace with God. Joy in him. The joy that we have in this passage, he even turns specifically to our confidence in this restored, loving relationship with God now and in the future. Now, would this kind of confidence he speaks of here have any ethical implications? Would it have any impact on the way we choose to live our life today? If you look just before our verses, you'll see that Paul, up in chapter 5, verse 2, has said that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And in our passage now, what he's doing is, he, is explaining the grounds for this hope, the grounds for our confidence. So we'll consider this in four points if you're taking notes. Here it is, the outline for you. All right, four points. Now, I'll give it to you as I go along. <laughs> but I pray that as you follow, you will grow in your appreciation of what God has done for us in Christ and that you'll see that the way he has provided for us is a way that does have an effect on our today and on our tomorrow and forever because of the joy we have in a restored fellowship with God. So let's notice first the future benefits of Christ's substitution. The future benefits of Christ's substitution. And once it's that's what Paul's arguing in our verses, look at that second half of verse 9. He talks about how much more shall we be saved from wrath through him. And then verse 10, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That how much more that you see Paul using there a couple of times uh, he uses it again in his letter to the Romans and elsewhere. It was a very common way of arguing. It still is where you argue from the greater to the lesser. Well, if God has already done this, he'll certainly do this. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. He will, having saved us by Christ's death, certainly now that we are reconciled to him, he will treat us as friends and will save us from his wrath on that last day. 
Now, mentioning the word wrath, I have to stop and make sure that we've all noticed this little word there at the end of verse 9 and that we are thinking about it as we should. Some today deny that God is wrathful at all. They say it's a terrible anthropomorphic way to speak about God, speak about God as if he's a man, and it's, it's dishonoring to God. Uh, there are others who say that, well, in this universe, it simply means that's the impersonal working out of cause and effect. Uh, the universe is set up to cause there to be a penalty, a, a payment for that which is bad. And that's all that's really going on here. But is that what wrath means? Many are embarrassed at the whole idea of it. But according to the Bible, God is clearly a God of wrath. He's not only a God of wrath, but he is a God of wrath. But it's not the wrath of an embarrassing heavenly temper tantrum. Rather, God's wrath is always represented as right, as as correct. Paul, in this letter, has already repeatedly spoken about how we have left ourselves open and liable to God's wrath because of our sins against him. We have sinned against a God who is uncompromisingly good. God's wrath is not some peak of a spurned lover. No, it is the personal and powerful opposition of God to all those who would do harm to others or to themselves. It is God's commitment ultimately to himself and to his own character and to oppose God's laws is to oppose God himself for they are the expression of his own character. How do we oppose him? We oppose him by sinning. We oppose him by erecting the idol of ourselves and putting that first in our lives and doing everything to serve ourselves in a way that's mindless of what God has told us. We do it by spending this life, this day, on something other than what he made us to spend it on. And when will we experience God's opposition then to our evil, God's wrath? All of us are to expect that God will judge us if he is truly good. What do you mean saying your God is good if he never judges? We're told not to exact vengeance a little bit later in Romans. Not because vengeance is wrong, but because God will exact vengeance, we're told. And therefore, we should not do it because, frankly, we're not competent to do it. It's a, it's a task that's too important for the likes of you or I to do. God will pursue justice. He will judge. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, it it is this idea of final judgment that we come to understand uh, by this uh, idea of a final salvation that Paul talks about here. You see that a final judgment. He says a couple of times, we shall be saved. Did you notice that? We shall be saved. Well, what will we be saved from? God. What we need to be saved from is a good God who is committed to goodness and justice and righteousness and who will oppose us because in opposing those things, we oppose him. 
in fact, to the Thessalonian Christians. Paul wrote about Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, uh, let's try to understand this a little bit more. If you're a Christian here and somebody comes up and asks you, uh, are you saved? You know, you can, in a very honest and accurate way, say no. Let me explain. By that, what I mean is not in this future sense that Paul's writing of here. When he says, we'll be saved, we'll be saved, here in verses 9 and 10. It's not that you won't be. I mean, the whole of this letter, the whole reason Paul is writing this is it so that you will have confidence for that day as you consider that day. But the final judgment hasn't come yet. And so while we are confident of our acquittal, it's been promised to us on the highest authority. We've not yet stood before the judge. We're not dead yet. That final assize has not happened. So he writes here in verses 9 and 10 about this future aspect of our salvation. Basically, Paul writes in all three tenses about salvation. We have been saved, he'll say many times, have been saved from the penalty of sin. So we have that future acquittal at that great final assize assured to us. We know the penalty of sin has been forgiven us. We are being saved, Paul writes to the Corinthians, we are being saved right now from the power of sin in our lives as we see it being broken. And then here in this passage, in Romans 5, he talks about how we will be saved. He has that future salvation in mind. Now, don't misunderstand. If you're saved in any one of the tenses, you're saved in all three. They go as a set. And that's kind of what Paul is arguing here. But we don't need to have, to use the theological language, an over-realized eschatology and act as if everything that's ever happened in terms of salvation has already happened. Because that's not true. It's been made certain for us if we trust in God by faith in Christ, but it has not yet occurred in history. And so, Paul writes here about the confidence that we should have about how much more shall we be saved. Well, that's what he wants to encourage them in. So you see what Paul is saying here. Believers will not experience the wrath of God on that final day. So we will be saved. This is... This is a great assurance that we have as Christians. Now, particularly for those among us who tend to give in more to their guilt feelings, who tend to feel ridden over by them, listen to this sweet quotation from Richard Sibbs as he considered the repentance and return of Israel in Hosea 14. As he exalted in this salvation, Sibbs pictured this scene, and, and I invite you to picture it as well. When our sins are set in order before us, the sins of our youth, middle and old age, our sins against conscience, against the law, against the gospel, against examples, vows, promises, resolutions, and admonitions of the Spirit and servants of God, So you understand what all those things are saying, right? When all these sins are set before us, youth, middle, old age, sins against conscience, you know better, sins against the law and the gospel we read in Scripture, sins against examples, Jeanette's example of service, 
Sins against vows, promises, the church covenant you've made together with us, your marriage vows, sins against resolutions, admonitions of the Spirit, you know the Holy Spirit is witnessing to what you're reading in Scripture, and the servants of God, this sermon right now, all these things, sins against these things. And when there shall be such a terrible accuser, and God shall perhaps let the wounds of conscience fly open and join against us, when wrath shall appear and be in some sort felt, And God presented to the soul as a consuming fire. No comfort in heaven or earth appearing. Hell beneath seeming ready to revenge against us the quarrel of God's covenant. Oh, then, for faith, to look through all these clouds, to see mercy in wrath, life in death, the sweetness of the promises, the virtue and merit of Christ's sufferings, death, resurrection, and intercession at the right hand. The sting of death removed. Sin pardoned and done away and glory at hand. That's what we have to look forward to in Christ. We don't have to try to de-God God and neuter His justice in order to think that we might be able to survive. Because we see what God has himself done in Christ. God has made a way for us. The fully holy, perfect, fully good, fully just and merciful and loving God that he is. The benefits of a future salvation all come, it says here at the end of verse 9, through him. Through Jesus. He is our means of being saved on that last day. And particularly because of his sacrificial death for us. We are saved through Jesus' life, he says at the end of verse 10. We're thinking of this last week when we were looking up at 425. Christ's resurrection assures us of God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice for us and therefore assures us of God's acceptance of us. It's only by Christ and his resurrection life that we can have confidence. Confidence that Christ will continue in his love for us. That he will be effective in his intercession for us before the Father. As Matthew Henry said, Christ dying bequeathed us the legacy But Christ living pays it. And we walk now in that confident newness of life, as Paul is about to go on and speak about in Romans chapter 6. So if you want to know more of that great newness we've been been invited into, this afternoon, read and meditate on Romans chapter 6. Now, my friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I wonder how this confidence sounds to you. When you think of the future, do you have this kind of confidence? What do you think happens after you die? How could you know? Well, the Bible says that there is a God. And the Bible says that this God has revealed the truth about himself and about eternity to us. It tells us that he is good. And for us, in one sense, because of our sins, that's bad. Because we, by our actions, have committed ourselves to be against the good. Too many times. You know all those times you've done the right thing? Well, that doesn't matter in one sense because of all the times you've done the wrong thing. You will never find that your good works are going to outweigh your bad works. Salvation will never come that way. Our hope as Christians is in the risen Christ. All of us here this morning who are Christians have this same hope. 
We have a unity that springs from our lines, as divergent as they be now, all ending up together in Christ. Thus, we're all moving toward that single hope. And as we do move closer and closer to it, we become more and more united. Have you ever noticed how even good things like your work or even your family are not ultimately satisfying to you? Have you wondered wondered why? Did you ever think that those longings were there to prod you to move on to look for that relationship that will never disappoint? And that's the relationship with God that he promises us in Christ. Oh, my brothers and sisters, I, I pray that we may draw on this anticipation of a wonderful future to help us in trying to Fulfill well our roles at work, in our families, with our friends. What a great confidence the Lord Jesus has given us. How that should affect our daily lives even now. How that should affect the way we deal with each other this afternoon or if somebody blocks you in in the parking lot. I mean, how much greater hopes affect us when our lesser hopes are disappointed. Because what we really hope in becomes obvious. We're never held hostage to the circumstances of this world. I pray that we as a congregation will be marked by this kind of confident joy as we anticipate the coming goodness that God has for us through Christ. Well, this is just some meditation on the future benefit of Christ's substitutionary death for us, but now having considered some of the future benefits of Christ's substitutionary work, I do want us to notice some of the present benefits of Christ's substitution. Number two, the present benefits of Christ's substitution. Look there in verse 8. We see that little phrase at the end, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood. And then in verse 10, he mentions, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And again, that phrase, having been reconciled. The whole Old Testament system was preparing us for this. That's why this series began on Christmas Day with a message from the Old Testament. As we were beginning to walk through and see the way God had dealt with the nation of Israel for a thousand years to prepare for this. So that we would understand Christ died for us. Now Paul had just said that. You see up there at the end of chapter 4 in the verse we looked at last week. We should have known that if we were there. All the supernatural phenomena that had surrounded the death of Jesus Christ were to point to the unique status of his death. He became sin for us. He took the blame for us. He bore God's wrath in our place. He did this all for us. Paul emphasizes this because this kind of love is frankly unknown in human experience. I don't care how nice somebody has been to you. They have never loved you like this. I really mean to contend for that. I'll happily talk to you at the door afterwards, have a sweet little brief argument. You can give me the the best example of the way someone has ever loved you. And I can try to help explore the differences between that and how God has loved us in Christ. Paul has just really done this in verses 6 and 7. He said, look, a good man maybe might think to die for someone else. Maybe. But here we see that Christ has died for us. And consider again what Christ's death was. It was... Death by the barbaric cross, an execution of the utmost cruelty. 
It was an offensive, obscene death. And Jesus Christ died this death for us when we actually deserve to be treated that way because of our rebellion against God. He died as our substitute. Friends, crucifixion was a horrible image when Paul wrote this. It was used all around the world, not just in Rome. It had been used in India, tribes of Western Europe, Numidian Africa, all over the place. But the Romans used it specifically only on the lowest, those without rights or power, rebels, heinous criminals. It was the stuff of stories and tales, but the hero was never crucified. You'd never make up a story intending the reader to identify with someone who was crucified. Friends, this is such a horrible end that it wouldn't have even been done to the hero in fiction. And yet this is how God has loved us in Christ. This is the extent of his love. And this extremity of his physical suffering indicates something of the severity of his spiritual suffering. Friends, the substitutionary atonement for us is the place where Jesus took this horrible punishment that we deserved. And the horror of it is to underscore to us what we deserve because of our sins. It wasn't arbitrary or by some kind of chance that this is the death that Jesus died. God, in his provident sovereignty, chose the worst death to show to us the truth about our own spiritual state. This is what we saw last week in Romans 4.25. Paul says it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This event is itself so powerful that though it's in the distant past, it affects us even to this day. Tens of thousands of people just in the district, forget Maryland and Virginia, are this day in Christian gatherings because Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. It has continuing effects. All right, we're going to pause right there, and we're going to pay some bills. When we come back, we will continue with this very good sermon uh, on you know, the blood of Jesus Christ and the penal substitutionary atonement by uh, Dr. Mark Deaver from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. All right, we will be right back. If you want to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. How often do you see them? 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. That's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Christianity is unique in that it is based upon historical fact. None of the other religions are that in which if you could disprove one historical fact, the whole religion would crumble. But that's how it is with Christianity. If you can disprove that Christ did not raise from the dead, then there is no such thing as Christianity. That's a topic of a debate for a live Table Talk radio presentation. Did Jesus rise from the dead? The debaters is Dr. David Scare of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the book, What Do You Think About Jesus? versus Dr. Robert Price, fellow for the Jesus Seminar and author of the book, The Case Against the Case for Christ. This all takes place on Pirate Christian Radio, Sunday night, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in live to pose your questions to the debaters. Listen to Table Talk Radio Live, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead, on Pirate Christian Radio, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning, denying Christ's substitutionary work for you on the cross and in life. Yeah, you're, you're missing the whole point of the Bible. I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And when you join our crew, there are perks. You get access to, you will receive copies of each of the books that we publish when they are first made available. So, uh, you know, if you know, if you're not already a crew member, sign up now. And uh, between now and the end of May, we will uh, send you a link 
whereby you can download uh you know the 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 uh, EPUB or Kindle editions of our book regarding the sufferings of Jesus Christ for sinners. Good 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 stuff. So uh, and of course if you'd like to make a one-time contribution you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers Indiana zip code 46038. All right, here again is Dr. Mark Deaver and his sermon entitled Justified by His Blood from his sermon series entitled Pierced for Our Transgressions. So how is Christ's death effective for me today? Well, fact and faith have to come together here. The historical event of the death of Jesus and our reception of it by faith today is how we come to benefit from Christ's death. Saving faith is, is nothing without the cross. It's not saving. It's just faith. People today talk about having faith, just have faith. Friends, faith is worthless. Faith is worthless. If it is, does not have as its object Christ and his death on the cross. It's not some amorphous religious stuff that we can buy and sell on the open market and put it in whatever and it works. The universal fuel. No, faith is not... Faith is no stronger than its object. Faith is just reaching and grabbing on to something. Well, what are you reaching and grabbing on to? On the other hand, neither should the cross be left merely as a fact proclaiming God's love, but not being personally appropriated by faith. Don't just think that because Christ died, you'll be fine. You needn't trouble yourself with religion because Christ died. Friends, Christ died so that you would come to see God's love for you in it and you would trust Him. And so trust Him with your whole life. Without such trust, we will know no benefit through the death of Christ. Paul goes on from this terse mention of Christ's death at the end of verse 8 to be more specific about what's come to us as a result of Christ's death. Look again at the beginning of verse 9. Since we have now been justified by His blood. So... By Christian brothers and sisters, we live in a present state of justification. In that reality, we have been justified. In that sense, our acquittal has been secured and assured. Sinners have escaped the judgment of God by God's own plan. But Paul's point is that believers now are in a right relationship with God and that we are so because of an amazing act of God and His love, Christ's death for us on the cross. And Paul is clear here to say that this justification happens by his blood, are being justified only because of Jesus' death, and the death of the utmost torment. Jesus was our substitute. We are justified, as Paul had said up in chapter 3, verse 25, only because we have faith in Jesus and in his blood. The crucifixion was at the center of Paul's gospel, at the center of his theology. Not only does Christ's substitution secure to us hope and assurance, justification, it also secures to us reconciliation. You look in verse 10. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Now, listen to Paul's words to the Corinthians. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The fact of Christ's death is a call to us to be reconciled to God 
by trusting this God who has promised us all that he has in Christ. We can't miss the centrality of the cross. Paul says here that this reconciliation happens through the death of his son. I think we see something of what an amazing reconciliation this must be, again, by the severity of the death. What, what, a, what a deep breach, what a wide gulf must have existed between us and God because of our sins. We see this represented by the extraordinariness of the death of the Son of God. And again, that it was not just any death, but a death like this, crucifixion. A death that was understood to be uniquely horrible and disgusting. And yet Jesus Christ was willing to take that death on a cross on for us. That's the extent of our need, and that's the extent of his provision. By Christ's death, God satisfies his own wrath and invites us to drown our enmity in his love. Reconciliation is obviously presented here as a result of justification. These are really two images for the same set of people. Nobody's justified who's not reconciled. Nobody's reconciled who's not justified. But Paul is meditating, as it were, on the benefits that we have. But these, these are the same because the offended law and judge, God, is the same as the estranged and opposed one, God. And the lawbreaker, sinner, man, is the same as the alienated, as God's enemies, man. So justification includes pardon and return, and so reconciliation includes a spanning of the breach and a restoration of the relationship with God. What a sweet thought that we have been reconciled. To God. That that haunting guilt, which can be backed up ultimately only by God, and that's been dealt with by Christ's death on the cross. So my non-Christian friend, I just want to say to you again, that longing that you have for a relationship that works, that's what we Christians would suggest it has been left in you by God's kindness to you. He doesn't want you to be wrongly satisfied on a sort of titanic of your own sins as it sinks and sinks while you dine in luxury. He wants you to wake up to the spiritual peril you are in, and so in his kindness, he leaves little messages around our lives of dissatisfaction, of the thoughts, couldn't, couldn't there be something more? Freud and others in his field took those little signs as part of a universal human experience that, that somehow reflected just a desire that we had but it seems that we had innately. I mean, that's the question. But as Christians, we would say, well, yeah, but it's there for a reason. Why do you assume those desires are present in so many people? If there's no creator, well, then we have no real answer for that. But if there is a creator, are we surprised that he would leave those things there deliberately for us, as it were, as his calling cards to tell us to turn and look to him? God has loved us so in Christ. He's made us in his image to know him. But we understand that we've all sinned. We've broken that fellowship with God. Our first parents did, and we've all ratified it in our own lives. None of us have objected. And we understand God could be completely just and let us go in our sins. But in his amazing love, the eternal Son of God took on flesh, lived our lives perfectly, lived a fully human life. And died on the cross, bearing the penalty, not for his own sins, because he didn't have any. But he bore the sins of alienation and rebellion for us. For all of us who would repent of our sins and turn and trust in him. 
And how do we, how do we know we can believe Jesus in this? Because God raised him from the dead. Because we have that hope in Christ confirmed by the fact that he was raised and then ascended to heaven. So we, as Christians, believe that we are now all commanded to repent of our sins, turn from them, and to trust in him. And so we will be justified. So we will be reconciled to God. So we will have this certainty of a future salvation. My non-Christian friend, all of that is there. Will you repent of your sins and trust in Christ? That can be there for you every bit as much as it's there for the Christians around you today. My Christian friend, are there any ethical implications of believing this stuff about the substitutionary atonement of Christ? Well, what would somebody say if they were following you around your workplace? Are you a peacemaker? Do you absorb wrongs done to you? Or do you excite them? Bring about more strife. In your marriage? I don't know. Are you married like a saved person is married? Are you married like a rescued person is married? Do you hold grudges? In your family? How actively do you seek to model reconciliation? Isn't that what the gospel is all about? Our God coming to pursue us when we had left him in friendship and love? Friends, our congregation is to be a living picture of reconciliation. We're a walking photograph. We are to show people of the world what it is like to live in a way where we're reconciled to God. We're to point to forgiveness and to restored relationships. Which reminds me of one more thing. I talked last week or week before last about how joy is an aspect of religion that's really unique to Christianity in religions. Did you know this, this talk of us being in personal relationship with God is also something that's unique to the Christian religion? How many conversations have I had with friends of mine, Jewish rabbis? Uh, I remember a Muslim uh, at a meeting I was at, Ahmed Zidat, one time, just sort of mocking this idea. Christians think they know God personally. Friends, this is not what other religions teach. Other religions don't even hold out a hope of a personal relationship with God. The most extraordinary thing about this Christian message is that God himself has come seeking us to be in personal relationship with him. Now, look, if you're here and you're not a Christian, all the Christians around you think that they're in personal relationship with God. Don't be worried. I don't think they'll hurt you because of it. But we actually experience in our own lives a relationship with the one who made us, who knows why we've been made, what we're here for. That's what Christianity holds out. Paul knew the truth of it. He knew that the present benefits of Christ's substitution for us are justification and this reconciliation with God. Now, remember, of course, that Paul had been reconciled to God while he was God's enemy. A very dramatic story. Going to Damascus to persecute Christ's followers. And that brings us to number three, the timing. The timing of Christ's substitution. Paul mentions in this passage. And I think he seems to underscore this point. He would know it so well personally, but it also helps to highlight what he's saying. Look at verse 8. He has that phrase. While we were still sinners. Or as one paraphrase put it, while we were totally messed up. And then again, he says at uh, the beginning of verse 10, 
when we were God's enemies. This is the great story that he's pursuing. He showed in 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3, that we are all God's enemies. And then, in chapter 4, he used the example of Abraham. And he said, look, even Abraham didn't have his own righteousness to commend him. He was justified while he was still wicked. God justifies the wicked, Paul concludes in chapter 4, verse 5. Paul calls us all sinners here in verse 8. That's what the tax collector in Jesus' story in Luke 18 called himself a sinner. Sinners is a firm old word, isn't it? Described us by what we do and what God thinks of it. Sinners. Matthew Henry says, neither righteous nor good, not only such as were useless, but such as were guilty and obnoxious. Not only such as there would be no loss of should they perish, but such whose destruction would greatly redound to the glory of God's justice, being malefactors and criminals that ought to die. Sinners. And then in verse 10, Paul states it even more strongly. For if when we were God's enemies, now the Greek just says enemies, but it's clearly implying God's enemies. Earlier in this chapter, he calls us weak and ungodly. In verse 8, he calls us sinners. Now here, verse 10, we're enemies. Which, my friends, is an amazing and a frightening thought. Consider being an enemy of God. If you choose your friends carefully, you should choose your enemies even more carefully. We opposed God. We opposed his people. We opposed his gospel. We were not merely weak or erring. We were not merely ungodly or sinful. We were warring against God. We were God's opponents. And we are therefore most justly the objects of God's wrath. This letter has been clear in saying that we are by nature hostile toward God. And also, too, that God is hostile toward us, wrathful even because of our sins against him. To quote Sibs again, if we had all the creatures in the world to help us, what are they but vanity and nothing if God be our enemy? I paused and I thought about these two images of sinners and enemies because this is, this is the timing of Christ's substitution. When would he come? When would he die for us? Christ didn't come and die as our substitute after a long series of humble entreaties from us. After centuries of obedience on our part as we brought him great gifts trying to assuage the wrath of God, trying to make up for the sins of our first parents. No, Christ came and died while we were still sinners. When we were God's enemies. Can you imagine it? We here on earth have long and learned discussions by our most respected ethicists about whether or not we should torture our enemies. God in heaven decides from eternity past to send his own son to die for his enemies. Why would Paul want to Make this so clear that we are sinners and enemies. Why would he put everyone down? Is he denigrating us? Is he, is he trying to discourage us? What's he doing? Well, Paul is telling the truth. And he is stressing this point in order to show that God's love to us is not based on anything you or I would do. Nothing we have done, nothing we have in ourselves. It is all of God's grace. 
In fact, God gives us contrary to our merit, contrary to what we deserve. My non-Christian friend, I wonder what kind of desert you feel you have, what kind of merit you have, how you think you deserve to be treated by God. I wonder how you are able to answer that honestly. What Christianity tells us is that if there is ever to be a salvation for you or for me, it must be by God's grace. And what we find when we turn to the Bible is that Jesus Christ is a gracious Lord. And you can tell this even by the timing of his substitution for us. He didn't wait until we had cleaned ourselves up and until we had worked our way up to try to deserve his gift, though we could never have done that anyway. He came when we were all sinners, all his enemies. My Christian brothers and sisters, if God has so treated his enemies... What does that tell us about how we should treat those who have wronged us? Think of those who have wronged you. As a Christian, what are your obligations toward them? Honestly, we think when somebody's wronged us, it pretty much clears us of any obligations to them. We think, well, that's it. They've spent their wad with us right there. They've done something that's wrong. I now kind of have carte blanche to treat them however. Treat them badly, treat them poorly, treat them coldly. But then honestly, you probably don't have any enemies. Any real enemies. Maybe a rival here or there. An annoyer. You know. Maybe a disappointer. Someone unresponsive, but not enemies. Look at how God treated his enemies. What do you learn from this? Think of yourself at work. Think of someone there in your office you find obnoxious, particularly irritating. Someone that you can lose your patience with ten times faster than anybody else you have to work with during the week. Perhaps worse, someone who you feel has done you wrong. Now, if you're going to use this time well, don't just wait for some story. No story is coming. This is not a homiletical trick. I want you to think of somebody like that. All right? So take just a moment and think of, okay, who irritates you? And if you can think of somebody who's wronged you, that's even better. Think of somebody who's wronged you. Now, if you do this, do you feel the sharpness of your moral vision increasing? Wronged me. They were wrong. Do you feel the acuity of your sense of right and wrong sharpening? Your vision is getting clearer morally, isn't it? You can see what they did is wrong. Anybody could see they knew all the facts that what they did is wrong. You see, that's because you're getting in a position where you feel that you're right. So you can see things more clearly, it seems. And and go on and give in to that sense of righteousness, all right? Let, Let it pull you up a little higher. So you can see even more clearly what this person did to you. Get a good long look. Think of it carefully. You look down on that one who is so wrong in the way they have treated you. Now, do you realize that you have been far more wrong 
in the way you have treated God. You won't feel the punch of these verses till you see that. You have been far more wrong in the way you have treated God. Husbands, when was the last time you asked your wife to forgive you? Children, when was the last time you asked your parents to forgive you? You know, we sin. We are wrong. Therefore, we must be those who ask for forgiveness. We can only approach God for forgiveness through Jesus Christ, who's made a way for us, even sinners and enemies, to be justified and reconciled. Brothers and sisters, we have got to have a mentality which thinks that we only can come to God through his gracious work in Christ and no other way. We've got to get rid of this idea that we come to God each week at church on Sunday because we've kind of pleased him by how we've lived our lives. No, we come only in the righteousness of Christ. If you think you're coming to God on your own merit, it only leads to a pride, and a pride that's false and misleading. And it only leads to a self-righteousness. Friend, get to know your own heart better, and you will become a better evangelist. Because you'll know more the truth about the heart of every person you speak to as you examine and investigate your own heart before the Lord. So, is there anyone in this church whose sins you are holding against them? Friend, you, you, you must not do that if you call yourself a Christian. Your whole salvation depends on God not doing that with you because of the satisfaction of His justice in Jesus Christ. Pray that God help you let go of that grudge. Pray that God help you forgive. Forgiven sinners, surrendered enemies. Those are the constituents of this assembly. All of us. Forgiven sinners. Constituents of this church. The only saving righteousness here is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The one who died as our substitute when we were still his enemies. One more point to notice. Number four. The point, the point of Christ's substitution, it's there in the first phrase of our passage. Did you notice it? We read over it so quickly and lightly, it's a Sunday school truth to us. But when you see the argument that Paul has tied it up with here, maybe it will have a little bit more weight. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Christ's dying as a substitute when we were his enemies, thereby securing our justification, reconciliation, our final salvation forever, was all for this purpose, to manifest, to show, to set forth, to prove, to confirm God's love for us. So by demonstrating his love in this way, God silenced the mouths of those who would deny or diminish it in any way. Having illustrated it like this, there's no room for us to doubt God's love for us. Oh, but he hasn't provided this circumstance for me. Oh, but friend, look at what he has provided for you. He, he has done this as the final convincing proof of his love. We might well be skeptical of 
the claim of God's love if God hadn't done something like this to prove it so? How could a holy God correctly love sinful men? That's what we thought of, remember, a couple of weeks ago in Romans 3. God is out to show, Paul says here, his own love. We thought a few weeks ago in Michael's sermon about the wonderful words for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And consider these words of Jesus, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And John wrote later in one of his letters, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's hard to speak on love in a Christian church. It's sort of the assumed thing. We all know that we're supposed to all be about love. Who's against love? It's presented as the supreme Christian virtue. First Corinthians 13 and the greatest of these is love. Jesus' teaching in Mark 12, love about the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Friends, did you ever stop to think why love has the supreme place among virtues? Why love? Well, because that's the way our God is. All that he's done in Christ, he's done, he says here in verse 8, to demonstrate his love. He would demonstrate his love. He would show and manifest his love toward us. The greatness of love as a Christian virtue is rooted in God's own nature of love, revealed supremely in Jesus' death and resurrection. Even in our passage here. You see in verse 8, Paul stresses this. Just look at the beginning of verse 8. That but at the beginning, it reminds us of the context. He said in verse 6 and 7, maybe a good man would love like this. But God. And he stresses it again with that, with that beginning there in, uh, in verse 8 when he says, but God demonstrates his own love. That's an emphatic, his own love. He's stressing this is God's love. This is what God is like. God sent his son when we were his enemies to die as our substitute in order to justify, reconcile, and save us forever. He was the son that we were ignoring. He was the victor uncheered, the creator unthanked, the Lord disobeyed, the truth disbelieved, the counsel unheeded, the home for us forsaken. The husband divorced, read Hosea. The family left. The child slain. And yet his love was such that he acted to forgive us and in a way that protected both his holiness and his mercy at the same time. This is all wrapped up in that simple statement that God is love. When you understand it according to what the Bible teaches my non-Christian friend, how do you react to news of such love? How do you get a demand for justice and love to work together? As Christians, we understand that's the very heart of the gospel. For us to see those two matters working together as they do in Christ. And notice here, not only that God is love, but that he will be known as being loving. If we are his children, we will love too. 
And what about those here who are different from you? Maybe a different nationality, a different race, a different political persuasion. Here on Capitol Hill, that matters. Do you see those as opportunities for love that God has left you deliberately? Opportunities for love. The whole point of Christ's substitution for us was to display God's love. So, does believing in substitutionary atonement carry with it any ethical implications? How can you come to understand even the smallest part of who God is and of how he has loved us without thinking that it does? Of course God's loving us in this way has the most profound implications for how you and I treat other people, for how we are called to act ethically. Perhaps most powerfully, it carries with us an assurance of God's love which transforms a person's life, giving confidence and assurance and joy down to the very last breath we draw. My friend, your job is a chance for you to display this godlike attribute in the way you conduct yourself. How can you ever be the loving person that you're made to be unless you keep the big picture about of what God is doing in this world clearly in focus? In a fallen world, love requires a long perspective. In a fallen world, love requires a long perspective. If you don't have that long perspective, we cannot make you be loving. But friend, if you have that long perspective, if you see what God is up to, you see something of what he's doing, then you will be able to love as he calls you to give yourself in love. Have you found this in your marriage, in your home? Friends, all of these are to be Christians' reminders and pointers to God's own love. They're, they're small, but the life of this congregation together is meant to indicate something much greater, much larger. Have you ever seen somebody's pictures from vacation of the Grand Canyon? It's not nearly as grand as seeing the canyon yourself. But they're better than nothing, those pictures. It begins to let you know something more is out there. Look around this meeting. This assembly is meant to let us know that something more is out there. Something beyond what the world experiences in its life. We, you and I, in our normal lives and relations, are to be pictures of God's cross-bearing love, even for his enemies. How would we know of God's love if he hadn't shown us the real thing itself in Christ? I love this prayer of praise in Valley of Vision. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed. Wounded that I might be healed. A thirst that I might drink. 
tormented, that I might be comforted, made a shame, that I might inherit glory, entered darkness, that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, Bore a thorned crown that I might have a glory diadem. Bowed his head that I might uplift mine. Experienced reproach that I might receive welcome. Clothed his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. Expired that I might forever live. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are amazed at being the objects of such love. We thank you for the indications of that love that you have left around our lives. We thank you for the witnesses of Christians, Lord, of congregations. Lord, we thank you for the proclamation of your gospel that we hear this news. Lord, we admit it's strange to our ears, our whole world, our economies, our own desires all teach us to live for ourselves, to consume for ourselves. Oh God, we are at first confused when we hear of such self-giving love. Oh Lord, we pray you would teach us more and more the truth about you and about the Lord Jesus Christ about the justification and the reconciliation that you hold out to us by your gospel. Lord, we pray that we will live these days with faith in you and in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us and in confident assurance of the joyful salvation that awaits us forever in him. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Good, good, good stuff. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. Just before uh, I give you my contact information, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we depend upon you. The way you, visit, the way you support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.00. 95 cents to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd, you can email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.